0: Welcome. My name is Patrick Curran, and along with Greg Hancock, we make up Quantitude. We are a podcast dedicated to all things quantitative, ranging from the relevant to the highly irrelevant. In today's episode, we start with one topic and quickly devolve into throwing pop quiz questions at one another for the entire episode. We also talk about being hoisted by one's own petard, teenagers who joke about degrees of freedom... Hearing accents in a written letter, Bargaining with Satan, Trivial Pursuit Bloodbaths, The Dad Rule, Vampire versus the Invisible Man, The Cement Pond, and Whale Petting Machines. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Welcome Greg to another episode of Quantitude. Can't believe we're still here. I can't um, believe it. Th- I, I can believe it. I'm not sure uh-huh. listeners can believe it.
1: <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, I am totally psyched about today's episode. Today's episode, for those of you who don't know, uh, Patrick had given me a homework assignment and so took the same homework assignment himself to get some topics from the news, just from the kinds of things that people encounter out there in the wild, things that are just awful examples of statistics or, or statistical reasoning. And so we were going to take turns sharing some of those today.
0: Exactly. Not getting too far ahead of ourselves, but these are in like the the same pool as the commercial. This is one of my favorite where the guy says, we'll beat a competitor's price or the truck is yours for free. All right. So Greg, you <laughs> are you're own you're the truck store. And I go in and I say, well, Bob down the street will sell me this truck for $30,000. And huh. you say, "Oh man, I can't do thirty thousand. I can't. I can't." I talked it. to, talk to my manager. I talked to my manager. We can't. We can't it's beat that. It's below cost. I can't <laughs> do it for thirty. Here are the keys. It's here. Yours. You go. <laughs> so, uh-huh. but a side story before we get into it. Yeah. I got twin daughters, and they're kind of both into the arts. I got one who's an and loves to act and sing, and one who's a piano player. And yeah. uh, the piano player. They're 15, and the piano player is, is now working with a kind of a more advanced teacher. She's getting quite good. And the teacher said an interesting thing that made me start thinking about some quant stuff which is an accomplished piano player, he said, should have a series of songs in their fingertips. I love that term. Hmm. He said, you need to have something in your fingertips. No matter where you are, you sit down at a piano. If you're at a friend's, if you're at home, if you're in a mall and there's an open piano, that you Hmm. should be able to sit down and play things with confidence and accuracy. And Hmm. I thought that was a cool concept because I thought that it could apply to quantitative methods. I started thinking, what are the songs that we have on our fingertips if you're a quantitatively oriented graduate student or scientist for that matter? And not even in quant, but that you just do a quantitatively based Mm -hmm. science. What are things that you should know at your fingertips without having to stall or defer Or to go Google something. You're walking through the mall and all of a
1: sudden you need to do something statistical. These are the things that you should have.
0: Exactly. So if there's a chair in the middle of the mall and you sit down (laughs) and you start shouting out quantitative things. Which, for those of you who don't know about Greg, he has been arrested on several occasions for doing this very thing. records, Records are sealed. Yep. Well... Remember, Uh there's a difference between being charged and being convicted. So, um, I unilaterally have a new quantitative segment called Pop Quiz for Greg. So, I want to see if what you have at your fingertips, and I'm going to give you 60 (laughs) seconds to (laughs) respond. Wait a minute. You can't. You, Actually, I can't. made you the you, boss? You I, made you the boss? I signed up for the Zoom account, and I can mute you, and so... Mute this. <laughs> okay. I'm Are you super serious? super glad this is an audio-only production. Yeah. Are you serious? I can... 60 seconds. I'm going to give uh, you a... Whoa, whoa, whoa.
1: Wait. Okay. So... <laughs> i'm having all kinds of flashbacks right now and traumatic i'll let you keep talking right now but let me just let the sweats pass go ahead what do you right, say? should
0: i have given a trigger warning that <laughs> i expected you to know something
1: Ooh. okay go ahead go ahead
0: okay so so are you ready you have 60
1: seconds wait, whoa, wait. It, i don't even know 60 seconds for what and i don't and and i whatever it is give me at least give me two minutes Can I get two minutes on this? Whatever this is. I'm a busy
0: guy. I will give you 90 seconds. Two minutes and you're just (laughs) going to start like talking about unrelated things, trying to introduce a fog of war. 90 (laughs) seconds. What what do I have to do in 90 seconds? I don't know. I'm just going to make up. I'm just going to make something up here. (laughs) All right. Hang on. Hang on. Let me see the (laughs) Uh, no, I know. I, I, you know, I you want to see- tell you my post.
1: I, I just want you to understand what I'm going through right now. When I was in seventh grade, my English teacher, Mrs. Emden, passed around a shoebox, and we had to pull a topic out, completely random topic, and get up and speak extemporaneously for a minute. And right now, I'm feeling every feeling I feel. I felt when I d- <laughs> I reached in there and I drew out a piece of paper that said slums. I to, <laughs> I, as a seventh grader, I had to speak extemporaneously for one minute about slums. It's not like we've been we're in English class. All right. <clears throat> all right. But I, all right. Let's see if I can do better okay. than I did in
0: seventh grade. <laughs> so, we'll see. Oh God. All right. All right. I yeah. am looking at you on, and you are visibly sweating and are nervous right now. Yeah. All right.
1: Okay. You All direct right.
0: your doctoral program in quantitative methods. You should have a series of things at your fingertips. And so here's one. I haven't even thought about this. I'm just going to make one up. To me, mm-hmm. if you're doing quantitatively oriented work, you should be able in 90 seconds to accurately respond to this. Hang on. I'm going to pull my phone out and pull up my. Okay, my I have to get stopwatch. in the zone. All right. I, have to get, I have to get in the zone here. All right. You're just rubbing your eyes vigorously. I'm not sure that's I'm helping. Helping is what I'm, doing. Okay, I'm, no kidding. I'm yeah. okay, yeah. Okay. I will start the, the clock after I ask the question. In okay. ninety seconds, please differentiate a sample distribution from a sampling distribution. Go.
1: Alright, a sample distribution is a distribution of scores from a sample, a sample which might have been randomly drawn or drawn in any other fashion. It's simply a plot of the scores. A sampling distribution, on the other hand, is what would happen if you reached into a population over and over and over and over theoretically an infinite number of times each time computing a particular statistic of interest. Let's say you're interested in the sample mean. So you reach into the population, draw a random sample of size 100, You compute the sample mean, you write it down, you do it over and over and over and over and over, infinite number of times. So many times you wouldn't do it yourself, you would have a graduate student do it. And then you make a plot (laughs) of these sample means or whatever statistic you're interested in, and that is a sampling distribution. It is a distribution of the random behavior of a particular statistic of interest, and it characterizes the randomness of that particular statistic. It gives you a sense of what would be an unusual value to get from a sample a statistic from a sample or what would be something that would be in the ballpark of what you would expect by chance. Um, not unlike when you are flipping a coin, if you have 10 coin flips and you flip nine heads, that feels unusual to you because internally you have a sampling distribution that tells you you should be getting Ten things seconds. around five or six or four. So a sampling distribution, again, is just a random distribution of st- a statistic upon repeated sampling Stop. from the pop.
0: Okay. Will you please expand that into a discussion of slums? <laughs> so before I grade your response.
1: <laughs> Not all kids are able to construct sampling distributions. Do you know? All right, I can so go on. So before
0: I grade your response. Um, yes. Do you wait, have any thoughts? Wait, thought? whoa, whoa, whoa. What? <laughs> Wait, having something at your fingertips and having someone grade what's at your fingertips is an entirely separate level. Okay, so Um, as a teacher, you're expressing concern about having your work evaluated? Interesting. Interesting. So before I evaluate the quality of your work, is there anything that you'd like to say about your response?
1: (laughs) Uh, well, there's a lot that I could add about sampling distributions. It's a highly nuanced topic. and being constrained to ninety seconds, I think is b s. <laughs> um, no, I'm leaving it there
0: on on All the right. court. Go I would ahead. say I would say for the most part, that was an excellent response. All right. Um, I think you hit the key elements of it. I think mm-hmm. that. We are in a career that's built on self-righteous indignation. And I think mm-hmm. that if you were at a dinner party swirling a wine glass and this came up,
1: mm-hmm. that
0: that you would not have disrespected yourself in that response. I think there were two elements okay. that, that I could have seen drawn out a little bit more. And that was <laughs> the relation of the shape of the population distribution to sure. the shape of the sampling distribution. Mm-hmm. So I'll tell you why I didn't flesh that out.
1: And that's because although the example I gave was about the sample mean, in which case we might invoke the central limit theorem and so forth. Um, I said you could do it for any statistic, and other statistics wouldn't necessarily have a shape that is governed by the central limit theorem to take it to behave as a normal. So I didn't invoke that because I wanted to keep it more general. But but had I had more time and focus specifically on the sample mean, I would indeed have invoked that. And it might have even been nice to have said something to that effect, but I didn't.
0: All right, but now you did. And so we mm-hmm. don't offer extra credit in the Quantitude Pop <laughs> Quiz, but if we did you would have gotten a point so okay okay well done so wait, that you said, was wait, a, you said there were two things there are two things actually what was the that other? was the shape of the population distribution okay. as it relates to the shape of the sampling distribution okay so so right. very well all right you passed right. you have that one song in your fingertips and so if you're at the mall with your kids and there's an empty uh-huh. chair you can sit down and shout out Ninety seconds on that, and, so, and I can sweat through my underwear there too. It, yeah, Excellent. there's boy, I could have done without thank that. Thank you. All right. <laughs> thank you for that. Um, okay. So anyway, so going back to the newspapers is well, oh, 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 oh. what? Uh, I
1: believe the appropriate phrase is, "Oh hell no, <laughs> um, no, no, no." I, before we get
0: before we get to it, no, our we, topic have for the day. we have an agenda. We have an agenda here too. Oh, talk you sit your about. ninety second butt down in that chair. Mr. Oh, I probably should have seen this coming. Uh <laughs> you, All right. Let's see. Anything I can
1: draw from the entire unit no. So these things are at your fingertips. So these are going to be things as you sort of telegraph that that are fundamental ideas like for example, well, let me get my timer ready. Uh, oh uh, yes. Sorry, let I'm me going to get through my a timer tunnel. ready. All right, here we go. Oh, boy. 90 seconds, and you have to talk about... Degrees of freedom, go.
0: Um, can I talk about slums?
1: Five seconds. Ah!
0: <laughs> degrees of freedom. Degrees of freedom. All right. Degrees of freedom, fundamental to everything that we do in inferential statistics. Shut up. Everything we do, fundamental to inferential statistics. Technically... Degrees of freedom are the number of limitations that you impose on a set of numbers that do not break a constraint. So for example, say I ask you to guess five numbers. First number can be anything. Second number, third, fourth, fifth. Fifth number can be anything at all. But now say, give me five numbers, but the mean of those five is 10. How many things are free to vary without breaking that constraint? First number, infinite. Second, third, fourth number, infinite. Fifth, it has to be that one number that then gives the mean of 10. So there are four degrees of freedom. Another good example I went out 18
1: seconds, 18 seconds.
0: Out to dinner at my favorite diner with my kids. There are four of us at the table. The waitress brings the dinners, says who gets the pancakes, who gets the eggs, who gets the waffle, and if she's a good waitress, she puts down the last one without asking because that's degrees of freedom. Oh, I had an extra second. I just no, heard no, that no. go off. No, that's <clears throat>
1: the that's the time lag that exists. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> It is. That's the time uh, that it takes the sound to get from here to North Carolina. That,
0: can you turn it off now? So <laughs> I don't know. How, I don't, oh I don't man! Know how. So how did I do? That was very stressful. Uh, okay, that's degrees of freedom. I believe the phrase
1: is hoisted on his own petard, <laughs> um, whatever that means. Uh, <laughs> so how did you do? Well, <laughs> well let's see. Um, so I, I will say I like your example. I, I like the idea of constraints, and the sample having five things. And once you put them in, I like that. Um, I love, I love, love the example of you and your family going out to a diner. That's a that's a great example. In fact, I'm going to steal that when I talk about degrees of freedom in my undergraduate oh. class. I like I like that a lot. What was really lacking for me. In your in your answer, um, and and to be fair, you only had ninety seconds. So the ideas of dimensionality and all of that, I'm going to give you a pass on that. Uh-huh. Here's the thing. Here's the thing that sometimes uh, gets lost sight of, and that is what what has the degrees of freedom when we talk about what a number of degrees of freedom is. It's really What the thing is that has a number of degrees of freedom. So a variance estimator could have a certain number of degrees of freedom or a test statistic could have a certain number of degrees of freedom or etc. So I might have in the time that you had allotted forsaken your diner example as much as I love it to bring it home and talk about what things actually have degrees of freedom, um, even if you don't get into the issues of biasedness and unbiasedness. So I, I will give that. I, I think you could go to a mall and talk about degrees of freedom, and I think you wouldn't embarrass yourself uh, in most places, but there are some places where. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, yeah, so how does that feel, huh? I, you are regretting your actions? I think... Mm-hmm. I think maybe this wasn't such a good idea after all. Okay. I, all right, um, smarty pants. I agree. I totally agree oh, oh, about... Oh. Now you're adding a rebuttal? Um, okay, that's fine. You gave me something. I was okay, going to say... That's fine. No, I'm agreeing with you, and that in and mm-hmm. of itself is a rarity, um, <laughs> that different things have different degrees of freedom. I, I, in fairness to myself, which is what's important here... Mm -hmm. is I was trying to get the concept of the constraint while also talking about the diner just because I like talking about diners because now we have a family joke that if the three plates are down and the server says, and who gets the veggie burger? (laughs) We all snicker to ourselves because it's degrees of freedom. And my poor kids being raised by two PhDs they see that as a degree of freedom joke, which, mm-hmm. you know, is probably not a good thing when you're a teenager <laughs> to have a degree of freedom joke. Because when they're going to go out with their friends to a diner in
1: high school, they're going to make the degree of freedom joke and they'll look around and go, huh? Right. Uh, uh,
0: right? Eh, right? And then Crickets. it'll be like you and me are <laughs> what our entire world is like. The Fossey right. bear. <laughs> ah, so, back to, back to. Yep. Yeah. Okay. but tying it uh-huh. back before we head yeah. back to other things, Yeah, yeah. Um, it's really important to think about degrees of freedom as number of constraints, right? The number, so if mm-hmm. you have a mean and a set of scores and you compute the variance, degrees of freedom are n minus 1 because you got to pay mm-hmm. a buck because you have mm-hmm. the mean, right? That's why it's n minus 1 for a small sample mm-hmm. estimate of, of the sample variance. But in structural equation models, The degrees of freedom are literally the number of constraints that you've imposed on your model. And I talk in my classes about degrees of freedom are a numerical assessment of your cowardice. If you have a model with two degrees of freedom, you are a coward because you're only imposing two restrictions on your parameter space. If you have 86 degrees of freedom, good for you. You may fail miserably. But at least you've done you've gone down swinging
1: uh-huh right with the with the 200 items you have Well, in your okay model. that's another issue entirely um, okay
0: okay okay uh, well, good. I, I so, don't know if I'd say I don't know if I'd say this feature was fun but uh, oh but it's far uh, from over my friends so life well, itself is a tennis uh, game I am queuing up the clock you have 90 oh, seconds oh geez to give me a thoughtful <laughs> Alright, not an intellectual crapping out on the desk, a thoughtful 90 (laughs) seconds on something that I hate in statistics. Please extemporize (laughs) on confidence intervals. Go. Oh Lord!
1: Did you say extemporize? I don't even know that that's a word. Anyway, okay, that took five seconds to to mock you. It was totally worth it. I'll take ten. Seven. <laughs> um, imagine that. Imagine <laughs> there's a characteristic in the population that you would like to understand. We'll say it's a mean, for example, the mean the mean weight of fourth graders. You're interested in studying in estimating the mean weight of fourth graders. Um, if you could gather all the fourth graders in the world, that would be great. Then you would have that mean in your hand. You can't typically do that, so you take a sample, we'll assume a random sample, and you get a sample mean. Let's imagine that that sample mean comes out to be 86 pounds. Do you think that is the mean of the population? Probably not. In fact, almost certainly not. You would be more confident if you were able to put some room around that 86. So rather than having a point estimate, you would have what we call an interval estimate. And the farther out you reach to either side, the greater amount of confidence you have. Now, the good news is that we know how sample means, for example, fluctuate around a population mean. As a nice tieback, thank you very much, that comes from the sampling distribution thing you made me sweat bullets through earlier. So I know how far around my sample mean I would have to reach to be able to create an interval in which I am 95% confident the population mean is contained. It is not 95% probable. That it is in there? 10 seconds. The population mean does not bounce around, but I'm 95% confident that I have captured the population parameter of interest with that confidence interval.
0: Time. Interesting. Oh
1: my God. (laughs) Interesting. All right. Let's have
0: it. Yes, Gregory, that is one interpretation (laughs) of why people live in slums. (laughs) I'm not sure a lot of people would agree with you. Okay. Um, Okay. No, it's, I am, I'm going to tell you, I'm going into this with a biased grading of your response because I do not like confidence intervals. I'm going to take a bold stand that I do not, I'm not a, Big fan of confidence intervals. Okay, I'm, I'm finding myself. Wow. Yeah. So that was a total setup. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I am willing huh. to agree that I've just kind of painted myself into a corner that maybe I don't necessarily okay. believe. But by okay. God, I'm going to go down
1: with the ship. All right. All right. Uh, so what's... So, so? okay, you, you tell me your thing, but then I want to tell you one other thing I would have said if I had had more time. Which you still might not like, but go ahead.
0: So there, there are two issues. Notice, I love counting. You know, numbered lists. Uh, uh, there, there are two issues that I have. One, it goes back to self-righteous indignation,
1: mm-hmm. um,
0: and the second one is a dubious interpretation of what you get. Not mm-hmm. dubious, but one that I find less helpful than we would like to think it is. The self-righteous mm-hmm. indignation is we are intellectually beaten about the head that we shouldn't focus on critical ratios. So we've got a parameter estimate of some unknown population value, and we have a standard error, which nice tie back is the standard Mm -hmm. deviation of the sampling distribution of that test statistic, as Mm -hmm. you so nicely described in your 90 second window. So we should never ever take the critical ratio and divide by the standard error, What we should do instead is take the parameter estimate and add and subtract two times the standard error, which functionally is a sample confidence interval. So Mm -hmm. I find the self-righteous, we shouldn't look at critical ratios, we should look at confidence intervals, not strongly supported when we're still using the critical ratio and the standard error. We're just doing something trivially different. So that's Mm -hmm. the self-righteous indignation that I react to. The more... And it's not even dubious. It's the misinterpretation of the confidence interval that drives me crazy. Mm -hmm. Because if the confidence interval, you could say there's a 95% chance that the population lies mean the population parameter lies between the two ends. I would use that every day of the confidence interval, if that's what you could say. So if I had Mm -hmm. making up numbers, I have a confidence interval between two and six, and I could say there's a 95% chance the population parameter lies between two and six, I would use that in every paper I ever publish. But that's Mm -hmm. not the interpretation. The interpretation Mm -hmm. is there is a 95% chance that your confidence interval contains the population parameter, which is a subtle but critical difference, and that's why I don't always like confidence intervals. So, what was your add-on that you would do if I gave you another fifteen seconds? Yeah. Um, so, I will tell you as a teacher, I it is one of those topics that's so
1: hard for people, and and I almost feel apologetic that I'm putting them in that situation of. Having to know the distinction between a correct interpretation and an incorrect interpretation because it's such a uh, a sucky setup, frankly. Like you like you just gave me. Um, so here, here's here's a way. Here's an example that I use in my class, and I don't know if it's going to work for you or not. Um, but it doesn't matter because I like I like talking about <laughs> it. Right? And that's as as we learn. That's what teaching is: just telling a bunch of stuff that we enjoy. Um, uh, so imagine a guy is walking his dog. And um, the dog doesn't have a leash, but the dog stays pretty close to the owner, you know, sort of flitters off to the left, flitters off to the right, uh, tends to stay pretty close, sometimes gets a little farther away, but for the most part stays pretty close to the owner. And someone takes a picture of, uh, of this walk that's taking place, and we see the dog clearly, but we don't see the guy because he's invisible or he's a vampire, whatever it is that makes you not have a picture. So you have a picture of the dog and the question is, where is the man, right? And if you know something about the behavior of dogs, you have a sense that the guy, the man is standing probably not too far away, but I don't know whether he's to the left of the dog or if he's to the right of the dog. I don't know if this is an example where the dog has wandered a little bit unusually far or if the dog is sitting right at the guy's feet. So I talk about confidence intervals. As this dog sort of, you know, flittering about left and right, left and right, left and right, and we have to try and guess where the man is, um, the invisible man. But but we only get one piece of information. We don't even get to see the full flitting about. We get one location of the dog, um, and that's the way I think about confidence intervals: is you got one little snapshot, and you have to figure out where is the where's the main thing that governs it all. I like for that. what it's worth for what it's worth
0: you know it's <laughs> nice that you and i run our respective graduate programs and our understanding of statistics involves diners veggie burgers <laughs> and invisible men who you invisible. think dracula is invisible <laughs> wait is it which one is it one of them is the, invisible, of, man the is man invisible man is invisible yeah. okay
1: <laughs> there's one that you can't see in a mirror what's is that one of them dracula
0: can't see himself in a mirror is that it? Yeah, we'll go hey, with you that. Have a, okay. Yeah, so you have a, that can use a little work. Yeah, I think you got this the confidence interval stuff right. Okay, okay. just to clarify, because these things, you know, uh-huh. ostensibly will be recorded and... And listened by people as is. I I, I was taking a, a hypothetical argument against confidence intervals. I'm not anti-confidence interval. I think that to say that you should never use a critical ratio and should always use a confidence interval, I think, is a little disingenuous because it's exactly based on the same information. I have an odd feeling that since since there's an inequity in pop quizzes that oh, I yeah. have another one coming. Oh, yeah. In fact, I'm just
1: going to say right now, we're calling an audible on the whole episode, and I am banking all of this stuff that I have, and you have 90 seconds to tell me about p-values go.
0: Um, you usually give a little more setup. Five seconds. I'm going to use 15 seconds to say, if you write a paper and you say P less than 0.05, you have an ethical obligation to say exactly what does that probability represent. And here's what I'm going to say. is If you do a two-group t-test or whatever it might be, and you observe a mean difference of 2.3 and your p-value is equal to 01. The p-value is there is a 1% probability that you would have observed a mean difference this large or larger if no difference existed in the population. So it is a probability assessment of you would have observed your sample statistic given the null hypothesis. It is not alpha level. Alpha level is what is the the degree that we require of probability to reject the null. An alpha of 05, an alpha of 1O, an alpha of 01, you're setting up the finish line. Your p-value is what is the probability that you would have observed your data given the null hypothesis. I'm done.
1: 10 seconds. Okay. All right choosing not to use your 10 seconds
0: i'm thinking of all the things you should have said (laughs) Um. so we each have younger brothers and Uh i know my brother is never going to listen to this he won't even answer my phone calls and so i can talk about Mm -hmm. him all i want we play charades when Mm -hmm. our families are together and and they get viciously competitive he has a horrible habit of of when anyone is done saying, you know what you should have done? You should have. I'm kind of feeling that way right now. So go ahead and tell me, how should I have defined the topic that you knew was coming, but I didn't? I only knew it like five seconds before I I hit you with it. fair Um, enough.
1: Yeah. Uh, Yeah, no, I thought that was a... It was an able explanation... Um, you know, whenever you get feedback, like on a manuscript from someone in Europe, it's just, the, there's, there's just not enough, not enough effusiveness in that. Or if you get tenure promotion letters, like you want to be careful asking someone from Europe, because you will get things like, the publication record is adequate. You're like, really? I went from get promoted on adequate. Um, so you're, and it's interesting excellent- that
0: comes through in a written letter as well. It's, you can you can totally hear it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So my response was adequate. In what yeah, way my as an adequate. instructor? I
1: thought, no, I, so I don't know that I am going to hold every person who ever puts a P value in their paper to have this addendum that shows that they can pass a minimum competency test with regard to interpretation. you got to admit um, you've
0: daydreamed about that though. Okay. <laughs>
1: okay. I do. I often do. Um, but, uh, yeah, I thought, I thought everything was capable. The, I, the, the, I, no, this is really me just more doing what you did before. And that is, I don't, I don't love P, I don't love P values anyway. I don't love P values in, in part, you know, what does a 0.06 mean? And how, what does a 0.06 mean? That's really all that different from a, you know, a a 0.05 or a 0.04. So, and that's not—that's really blaming the decision making that's done, you know, uh, on the p-value. Uh, people do things to leverage their p-values, right? P-hacking—that's troublesome. When you start to get corrections to p-values based on multiplicity, and you know Bonferroni-type corrections, other kinds of things, which I'm not—I'm not arguing with. I, I completely understand the logic of it and all of that. Then. Even the meaning of the p-value that you described has now changed because it's in the presence of other things that are going on too uh, I have had uh, reviewers tell me to report p-values in a correlation matrix and then Bonferroni adjusts them for significance and you know, my response is I understand why you're saying that because each one of them constitutes a significance test I don't think a Bonferroni correction would be the way to do it but um, but they don't tell me to do that in in the regressions or the model that I do. Um, so generally, p-values are a, a source of confusion, b a source of leveraging to try to get the result you want, and a source of horrible inconsistency in behavior. Anyway, in the way in the way we treat them with respect to the models that we do, um, and there's no way you could have hit all that in 90 seconds. So uh, could, could so you I passed. be
0: wildly defensive for a moment? Yeah. Would you? I don't get enough change. of that in my life. <laughs> Go ahead. I'm not defensive. You are. Shut up. Um. Okay. I agree with everything you said, mm-hmm. none of which applied to my response. You asked me what okay. a key value was. I agree yeah. with everything you said, including you and I just a few weeks were at a conference where Don Hedeker was presenting and said a very funny thing about how a p-value of oh six people always say, is approaching significance. And he said, how do you know it's not running away from significance? That's right. I totally agree. Do you think I interpreted a p-value correctly?
1: Um, oh, absolutely. Yes. I okay, because I'm not sure was... it
0: was it's a tricky thing It's a tricky thing to, to work on but I do I do not believe That you need to footnote to show you know a certain level no matter how much we we daydream about it A, a, a certain level of proficiency in whatever you're doing. I, mm-hmm. I would double down though that if you do hypothesis testing and you report p-values you should be able to describe to a colleague, if you say there's a less than a 5% chance, Mm -hmm. that you have to be able to say a less than a 5% chance of what? It's Mm -hmm. a probability of an event. It's a probability of something happening. And I get very frustrated at the number of times, either implicitly or explicitly, um, I encounter where people are not able to say what it's the probability of. It should be at your fingertips. It right? should be in your fingertips, and all it is. It's really interesting, and this is why why I didn't take the full ninety seconds is the correct interpretation of a p value really is in just one sentence. What is the probability you observed an effect this larger, larger? under the null hypothesis, if the null hypothesis is true. And typically, mm-hmm. the null hypothesis is, what's the probability you would have seen this effect if there was no effect in the population? But it doesn't have to be that way. Is the null hypothesis we can set up in any of a variety of ways. But that takes mm-hmm. me to my mm-hmm. question for you. <laughs> okay, so this is just...
1: Let, let's just lay... Th- this is just going to go on, isn't it? Power. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, power is the probability of rejecting a null hypothesis, given the conditions of a specific alternative hypothesis. If you were doing a study, I'll come back to the example of weight where you're comparing, uh, people who are not on a diet, they eat a bit normally versus people who are on a specific diet. And we go through this process for a month and we weigh the two groups. We want to know about the effectiveness of the diet. And we conduct a two-sample T-test, just for an example. Um, Are we going to find anything? Well, the probability of us detecting something, detecting statistical significance in that particular test, is going to depend, first of all, on whether or not there is any difference, uh, any effect due to the diet. It will also depend on things like the alpha level, the sample size, Um, If we're doing a one versus two tailed test, which, you know, usually I think about doing a two tailed test and the effect size can be thought of in two pieces. It can be thought of as a number of pounds difference. Um, It can also be thought in reference to how much variability there is in the weights that you have. So power is going to be the probability of rejecting an null hypothesis, given the condition of a specific uh, alternative hypothesis, the alternative hypothesis that 10 pounds really is the difference or five pounds really is the difference. That's it. I'm done.
0: Well done, really. Yeah, so you're at a minute and twenty six, but I'm very old, and it probably took me like three seconds to reach out <laughs> and turn it off. So we'll go with a, a minute twenty. Okay. Um, I really like that. That was a hard. That was a hard one because it taps into all sorts of things. You know what I've liked? I'm going to be uncharacteristic and I'm going to start with what I liked by giving you... Because, you know, I I don't want you to get used to kind of some positive feedback from me. No, no, no. (laughs) I really liked about how you twice clearly articulated about some condition that is a specific alternative hypothesis. I really like that because I think it's easy to talk about power as saying, what's the probability you'll find an effect if an effect really exists? And I'm guilty of that. I will talk about that when I teach, as I'll say. So power is there's an 80% chance that if you do, you know, I talk about, so I teach a lot of grad students and so say, all right, you're going to invest a thousand hours in your dissertation." The power is the probability that you're going to find an effect, even assuming you're right. We're not even factoring the probability that you're wrong. And mm-hmm. so I really liked not just the probability of finding an effect if an effect exists, it's what's the probability of finding a specific effect. So mm-hmm. kudos to you, you on that. That was very well done.
1: Thank you. Is there a but that comes? Um, no, that? I
0: was taught, I have been taught, you don't say but, you say and... And, All right, okay. so I actually was in a seminar and say, uh-huh. you are a really wonderful <laughs> contributor to this podcast, uh-huh. and it would be helpful if you let me talk occasionally. Do you see that, that instead of the butt?
1: If I'm hearing what you're saying, Patrick,
0: <laughs> <laughs> I was in a seminar too. Okay, okay. go ahead, so, continue. And... <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, no, this one was, I, I think it's an unrealistic expectation. You can't put it in uh, uh, to the 10 seconds that you squandered, was differentiating functionally what is a population power from a s sample estimate of power that taps back into almost everything that we've talked about is there you know how do you get a sample based estimate of power that itself has some variability and that's complicated and and so that would be an unrealistic expectation of differentiating like an asymptotic power estimate from how would you compute that in your sample data
1: mhm i uh The thing that you said uh, that sometimes being vague about, you know, the probability that you'll find something when there's something, I'm guilty of that all the time. And I, I just chalk it up to, to trying to be colloquial in my teaching, but, but in the end, you really do have to be very specific. And the funny thing is, is that when you go through uh, a power analysis exercise with people, and maybe it's not even an exercise when someone is planning something, uh, and although you and I have talked about power extensively and and our disdain for many aspects of it, um, <clears throat> it's funny to hear what the people will say when you're going through it. You know, you'll say something like, "Okay, what kind of test do you want to do?" Well, I want to do a two-tailed test. Okay, and what alpha level do you want to use? Oh, well, 0.05 is pretty standard for us. Okay, um, what effect size do you think there might be? Oh, well, you, you know, probably around a, a point. Okay. Um, Well, based on this information that you have here, it's going to take you 256 people per group. Well, you know, maybe we think the effect size is a (laughs) 0.5. And, you know, I I sort of joke with my students that, uh, you know, whatever the list of steps there is in power analysis, one of them is bargaining with Satan, because every person (laughs) you ever talk to they, they juggle the reality about, well, I, I guess maybe it could be bigger or maybe we only care about bigger or what. And uh, it's just it's just a funny uh, it's a funny behavioral exercise to go with people. I, I assume you experience something like that.
0: Uh, I do. And, and mm-hmm. if not like with other people, then with the voices that live inside my head as well, because I will work with colleagues and do a power analysis kind of late at night. And finally Uh get the calculation and, you know, under the characteristics of the design that our budget allows, our power is like negative 0.3, you know, which is pretty impressive because like it takes away (laughs) your ability to find an effect.
1: The better chance of finding something is not to do the study.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Um, My issue and that I have shared on other episodes is Mm -hmm. one is just exactly like you described, but the other one is you have an 8 point repeated measure piecewise linear growth model with four predictors a time varying covariate a distal outcome and a multiple group on treatment and control what is your power and It's like <laughs> yeah. of uh, what? Of what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know my answer is always 0.78 because uh-huh. you know you guys just you enough just, <laughs> Yeah, you 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 want to you know you don't want to say well it's point eight zero or .82 is come no. just yeah. shy and oh, uh, it's
1: got so much truthiness to it's it. It's truthiness, it? right? <laughs> okay, so All right, so it's coming at you. We're it's coming at you. Are you ready? <sighs> this is going to be a softball. I'm giving you
0: a softball. Oh, this is charitable. Okay, so this my, is dad, slow pitch. I, my dad, my <laughs> dad, he passed away uh-huh. a number of years ago. He was a, a, a high school teacher. He was a historian, and he had a corpus of knowledge that we would fight over him to be on our side for trivial pursuit. We used to have these mm-hmm. vicious trivial pursuit games as a family. I mean, bloodbaths. And they're some of the most fun, the, like the fondest memories I had growing up were, uh-huh. were these trivial pursuit games. We had what we called the dad rule, which was you could not pull up a card and look at it and go, what was the third battleship (laughs) in the second confrontation at Midway that was damaged but not sunk? Right. (laughs) And so we had a dad rule that you couldn't Uh ask a question like that. So you mm-hmm. need to restate the softball because you just violated the dad rule. <laughs> okay, um, so our trivial
1: pursuit thing was that sometimes it took so long for the game to be over that I would usually have a behind the scenes understanding with someone on another team that I would <laughs> fake read questions. <laughs> so I would, so I would pull up a card like they're on, and say they're on entertainment and and i would say what did the beverly hillbillies call their swimming pool the other person would go the cement pond i mean, that's right it is the cement pond but i'm totally making it up and i would just feed
0: them a series of things to get the damn game over isn't that what got the guy in trouble the you know the quiz show thing in the 60s is the same oh, thing oh right yeah so right. all right um Okay. Yeah. See, we have the same we have the same problem. We just uh-huh. changed the rules where you could get a pie wherever the hell you landed. You didn't have to land just oh, on the right. thing because the games would last like eight hours, and then we wouldn't talk to each other for a week. <laughs> but okay, go ahead. Um, that was not right. tangential
1: at all. Not at all. Uh, here we go. Oh, just uh, easy peasy. No, hey, no, 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 no. Coming no, no. in there. Here we go. Uh, Ninety seconds. And you must do both of these type one, type two error go. Oh, I
0: love it. Picture a two by two grid in your mind. The top columns are the truth in the population. The null is true or the null is not true. The rows are what decision do you make? You reject the null or you accept the null. Give me, cut me slack is we're not going to suspend judgment or anything. You're either going to accept or reject. There are four boxes in there. Two are correct decisions, two are errors. The first one is error of the first kind or type one error. You reject the null when the null is actually true. Type two is error of the second kind, which is you accept the null when the null is false. Type 1 error is you say there's an effect when there's really not. Type 2 error is you say there is not an effect when there really is. They're hydraulically balanced. The more evidence you demand to protect against type 1 error, you actually increase type 2 error. I teach, pretend you're in a submarine, you got to find a submarine out there that you don't know if it exists or not. You ping it, and it gives away your your location. A type 1 error is that you... Um, what am I on time? What am I on time? 15 seconds. Oh, okay. Is a type one error is when you say that there is a submarine when there's really not. All right? And you've given away your position. Type two error. You miss the sub. You're sunk and you all die. I'm out. Time. Yes!
1: <laughs> nice. You hand on we all die. <laughs> okay. All right. Wow, that was really... Um, adequate. I
0: love type 1, type 2 <laughs> air.
1: I have a okay. whole
0: nother lecture on how I've I've, my type 1, type 2 air, I've never had poison ivy because anything that's green is potentially poison ivy so I just don't touch anything that's alive and so mm-hmm. I never make a mistake of thinking something is not poison ivy mm-hmm. when it actually is because just everything is poison ivy I got like a 15 minute lecture on that <laughs> So you do type 1, type 2 are 90 seconds,
1: but you go on for 15 (laughs) minutes about poison ivy. Oh, lucky
0: to be in Dr. Curran's class. (laughs) Okay. Okay, just last semester, one of the students pointed out that all of my examples have to do with war. And death and, you know, enemies and trying to attack enemies and find enemies and all of this. And this lecture just now turned into, you have a whale petting machine, but you can't see... (laughs) And you have to know if a whale is out there to pet it. And and because they wanted something where not everyone died. And so if Uh-oh. you if you start the whale petting machine when it's not there, it scares away uh-huh. other whales that can't be petted. But if a whale oh. goes by and you don't pet it, it makes the whale very sad. And oh so God. I, I can do the whale petting machine.
1: What what sound would the whale make if it's sad, Patrick? Oh. <laughs> Okay. Um, all right. So my <laughs> whatever I had to say, <laughs> you, you you had me at sad whale. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, all right. So quick comments about your your very nice answer. Um, I I like using the terminology false positive and false negative when I talk about type one type two error because it tends to be things that people key in on very quickly. Um, and you came to that in a submarine way, right? Uh, I hate the word accept when it comes to null hypotheses, to say that we accept the null hypothesis. Um, I'm very picky about that because I never want to encourage people to literally believe in the null hypothesis. Well, I guess I accept the null hypothesis. Um, so I always use very guarded re- language. I either will say, you know, fail to reject or retain is that sort of tentative language that I that I use. If you had used this as an opportunity to tie back to power and the tension between the type 2 error and power, that would have been a really nice tie back, and you blew that opportunity <laughs> in a huge way. The other thing about the hydraulic relationship between the two that... Uh, um is sometimes hard for people to get their head around and certainly hard to try and do in 90 seconds has to do with the more you minimize your type 2 error rate for example you're not affecting your type 1 error rate because a type 1 error rate can a type 1 error can only exist under entirely different conditions so as you jack up sample size for example you're making your power smaller uh, i mean you're making your power bigger But your type one error rate, you can't even make a type one error. It's an irrelevant point. So uh, and that's something that I, I tried. You know, when we say we change our type one error rate, we make it more liberal. That only affects our power if we never could have made a type one error in the first place. Right. So it's a funny, it's a funny hydraulic relationship, I would say.
0: So I really liked your differentiation of rejecting the null or suspending judgment The other thing that if I had another 30 seconds I would talk about, and it taps exactly into what you were just saying, which is the notion of, is the null hypothesis ever true? So are 2 group means exactly equal. Is an R squared in the population exactly zero? And uh, as as you're aware, Cohen wrote a series of really wonderful articles in the early 90s, uh, the best one of which is... uh, uh, the Earth is Round, P, P less than 0.05, where he explores a lot of these things, but that there's a fundamental problem to null hypothesis testing in this way, which is we talk about what is the probability of our data given the null is true, but the null is never true, so it's a dubious endeavor to begin with. Mm-hmm. So the idea of the
1: null never being true I find a really intriguing one and you know maybe worthy of... Uh, of conversation. But two thoughts that I have about that. One is that even if a null isn't true, um, sometimes we have no information about the directionality. And so adopting a position of no difference is, it's not that it reflects a belief, but it reflects a, a lack of willingness to commit to one particular direction. So I think, I think the null is
0: sometimes a, just a, a point of, of balance. Hi, everyone. This is Patrick. So it was at this point that our computers froze, and my line was dropped. But Greg continued to talk for quite some time without noticing I was even gone, and he proceeded to weave a very complicated tapestry about ESP and trying to get me to admit that the null hypothesis might be true. By the time I got back on and reconnected, there was no way I was going to win that argument. So what I figure is, I'm going to stitch this in now. Greg probably won't listen to it, so he'll never know. And we're just going to jump to the final section. Thanks so much for hanging out with such a low-budget operation. So Greg, that was fun. It was very unanticipated. I'm not sure that's the episode that I was envisioning. Are you you surrendering? Wait, are you surrendering? (laughs) Surrender. Okay. Uh, Maybe a little. Uh Uh-huh. Maybe I will bow to you in having met a worthy opponent.
1: <laughs> we shall meet another day, my friend.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, folks, thanks for hanging with us in kind of a weirdo episode that was somewhat unexpected. We do have one outline to talk about misuses of statistics in the papers or in the news, but this one was kind of fun instead. I agree. Yeah, and there's good stuff in there. Let's. I, I actually
1: think we talked about some things that are, that are useful and we hit on some issues um,
0: unexpectedly (laughs) randomly there was something good in there I do agree with the concept that you should have a set of songs in your fingertips Mm -hmm. and they're quantitative songs they're research method songs anybody who does science as a living should have a handful of things at their fingertips and maybe we touched on a few here there's certainly many more we could talk about we could even do this in a future episode Mm -hmm. when you
1: least expect it (laughs) (laughs)
0: Ah, that's going to help me Uh sleep tonight.
1: Yeah, with one eye open. All right. Well, thanks, everybody, for joining us today. I appreciate it, and thank you, Patrick.
0: I hope you had as much fun as we did, and thanks, everyone. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye.
1: Hey, Potters, Be sure to tell your friends to check us out on iTunes, Spotify, or whatever platform they prefer. You can also find us on Twitter, where our handle is at QuantitudePod, and visit our website, QuantitudeThePodcast.org, to check out previous episodes and cool stuff we're adding whenever our darn day jobs don't get in the way. Today's episode is sponsored by PowerPoint, helping researchers put conference presentations in eight-point font since 1987. And by Academia, the place where the teachers have no training in teaching and the administrators have no training in management and everyone's okay with this. And by Total Unpredictability because Thrombosis Esoteric Nostril Kebab Oatmeal. This is most definitely not NPR.